This episode is sponsored by PumaPay. The metaverse has many layers. What that means is that depending on which ecosystem you're in, depending on you know, maybe what jurisdiction you're living in, maybe there are a certain level of NFTs that are censored where you're living, or maybe you know, the NFTs you hold are not allowed here. So you can imagine wearing different sets of glasses that show you different parts of the metaverse. The idea of, of multi-chain NFTs is really what allows for multiple metaverses to exist at the same time. I think it's really exciting and I think it's the future. Everybody really has to be committed to openness so that it's not a winner-take-all model. I'm a big believer in the fact that each chain has value that they can actually deliver to whoever their end users are, whether those be developers or consumers, and that that value should be exploited by those users. And to be able to do that, we shouldn't have a winner-take-all model. And I think eventually we got there on the website where we actually allowed this like winner-take-all mentality to take it. But I feel like here, given that we're the technology layer, we're the internet layer. So it means that everyone should be able to have those bridges built amongst and between them. Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Coindesk's Michael Casey and Sheila Warren of the World Economic Forum as they explore the connections between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. This episode is brought to you by the Coindesk Podcast Network. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Michael Casey. Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey. Today we're talking about blockchain interoperability. It might seem like an arcane topic at first glance, but for anyone interested in the future of the internet and in the prospect for a more decentralized digital economy, it's a vital one. Long, long ago, well, long ago in crypto time, there was only one blockchain, the Bitcoin blockchain. It was a single record of truth for all Bitcoin transactions, with the blockchain ledger's entries open for all to see and recorded and validated by a network of miners, each following the incentives and instructions of the Bitcoin protocol, users could transact peer-to-peer without relying on what Satoshi Nakamoto called trusted third parties. There were no gatekeeping intermediaries inside each transaction, and no one could censor the ledger. Then came Peercoin and NXT and later Ethereum, Ripple's XRP, Algorand, Cardano, and countless other blockchains professing to be faster, more multifaceted, less environmentally harmful, or simply offering a different value proposition. To varying degrees, those individual blockchains could also stand up a claim to being a single source of uncensorable truth. But now we face a new dilemma. Developers might have created intermediary free transactions on a per blockchain basis, But if you zoomed out and looked at the overall crypto economy, and you noted that people were operating on different platforms, owning and trading different native assets that were unique to those environments, a picture emerged of distinct isolated sub-economies. There was no capacity for all these blockchain communities to validate each other's versions of the truth. If you wanted to move value from one chain to another, or if an account in one blockchain wanted to read and validate data from another, they would once again need to rely on a trusted intermediary convey and confirm that information. It was starting to look a lot like how the internet had evolved, especially in the so-called Web 2.0 era. You know what I'm talking about, a world where large social media and search platforms, Facebook, Google, Twitter, Amazon, etc., manage the content, data, and identities of the users within what are essentially walled gardens. You want data about activity on these platforms? You need to go to the intermediary, 
the company that runs them. It's a monopolizing model that has empowered these enterprises and enriched their shareholders beyond anything in the history of capitalism. If you're a regular Money Reimagined listener or reader, you'll know that I think Web 2.0 is a pretty big problem. Anyway, many blockchain developers looked at this situation and said that we can and need to do better. They started exploring cryptographic solutions such as multi-sig notaries, side chains, atomic swaps, and cross-chain bridges to allow different blockchains to essentially talk to each other in a decentralized manner without intermediaries. And now there's a booming ecosystem in interoperability solutions. You have protocols such as Polkadot, founded by early Ethereum developers Gavin Wood and Hutter Steiner, just setting itself the lofty goal of creating the next internet via the aptly named Web3 Foundation. There are blockchains focused on financial interoperability, such as Ripple's Interledger and Stellar. And then there's Cosmos, the blockchain of blockchains developed by Tendermint, which provides a suite of tools for blockchain developers to build cross-chain applications. Today, we talk to leaders from the last two on that list. We're joined by Danell Dixon, CEO of the Stellar Development Foundation, and Peng Zong, CEO of Tendermint. But before we meet them, let's say hello to my co-host, Sheila Warren. Hi, Sheila. Hey, Michael. So, interoperability, Sheila. <laughs> what does it mean to you? You know, well, I think there's one thing you didn't mention in your monologue that we've been paying quite a bit of attention to at the forum, which is, of course, this idea that despite what you know, some may desire, not everyone's going to immediately move to a blockchain service or system or technology backing right away. So there's going to have to be interoperability, not just between different chains, but also between legacy systems and these new or new-ish, I suppose, at this point in time, blockchain systems. It's something we've been spending a lot of time thinking about at the forum, you know, not so much the technology, the technical elements here we're going to get into today are super interesting. There's some cutting edge stuff happening, uh, but it's becoming a little more established that this is something that technically needs to happen. It's really about the enabling environment there too. What about the legal and regulatory and policy and insurance and liability, you know, questions that arise anytime something moves from any one system to any other system that are going to, I think, really be necessary before we see an explosion in the ability of uh, information to move from one chain to another, or let alone from an off-chain to on-chain environment. Yeah, and it kind of harkens a little bit to some of the conversations we had last week about DAOs, where there is this sort of need for some sort of hybrid solution that brings the real world into that decentralized setting, and there are trade-offs. So we'll talk to our guests and see where they lie and how they've resolved some of those trade-offs. But uh, so why don't we bring them in? So uh, Danelle and Pang, thank you very much uh, for joining us. Uh, let's just start out, if we don't mind both of you, I'm going to ask, maybe to you, Danelle, first. Tell us what your definition of interoperability is, and then actually go backwards from that and tell us what is the core problem that you think we are trying to solve? Yeah, I know. Those are two great questions because interoperability means several things when I think about it, because I think about it back from like the early web days. And so interoperability is first, if you think about just making sure that you can speak the same language and that you can actually, that value can transfer very easily on chain to off chain, even if it's on a single chain, there needs to be interoperability with the existing financial system. We like to think of it as enhancing the existing financial system versus supplanting it. And so we need to actually have that kind of interoperability. And then secondly, it's the cross-chain interoperability, and that's sort of the building of the bridges. I think about USDC, for example, as being a really awesome way to demonstrate that interoperability because USDC is available on many different chains. So it's a multi-chain, and you can do the swaps with respect to, they have an API where you can do the swap with respect to the different assets on different chains. And that's really important from an interoperability standpoint. So those are the two ways that I think about it. 
why are we doing this and why do we care? And I think it's very simple, at least in my mind. If you think about the early days of the web and we built the foundations of the web and the internet itself are built on this notion of standards and interoperability. And that was awesome. And it took some time for folks to get used to web technology and to leveraging that. But once they did, they had access to so much information and, and it was limited at first in terms of the players that were involved, but then it grew to become this like plethora of information that you had access to. And then we got to the place where we had uh, sort of created these, these walled gardens and these silos on the web. And that was the challenge, right? Because then we actually have content that sits in a certain area. And then you no longer have sort of that interoperability, that promise of the web, that promise of free access and open access. And I don't want to see that happen on the what I call the payment side or the financial side of the web. And so for me, it really goes back to the learnings that I had from all of the efforts that we made. I was the COO of Mozilla for many years, focusing on open technologies and on keeping the web open and transparent, focusing on standards. So I really focus on that from our work. And also when we speak with regulators about like this notion of interoperability, cross-chain interoperability in as much as interoperability with the existing financial system because of that early day work that I did in the web. Uh, that's, that's great. I, lo- I love the passion around that because I think that, you know, what I was trying to get at in the monologue at the beginning as well is this sense that like, you know, we're building all these great solutions, but hang on a sec, are we not just recreating the same problems, right? And then for those of us who've spent a time thinking about all of that, and the Mozilla Foundation, of course, a really important institution in trying to address some of these issues. So Pang, same question to you, and, and clearly Cosmos has this, the system you created, this sweeping way of thinking about this. You know, what does it all mean to you? What are you trying to achieve here? Yeah, so I really like the way Danelle put it earlier, you know, about how Web 2.0 is, is sort of all about corporation-controlled data, whereas in Web 3.0, it's all about user-controlled data. So in some ways, with the right amount of developers um, in Web 3.0, there's actually no way data will continue to be locked and only served by corporations and secure by corporations, right? With, with Web3, you are always allowed to exit. And that is capable, something that's possible only because you know, everyone has access to the same data. Everyone can create protocols using the same data. Everyone can you know, build bridges with that data. The, the option to exit from any ecosystem that you're a part of you know, is really a tremendous part of what allows Web3 to be what it is today. Here at Cosmos, we really believe in decentralization, right? And also in the development of cross-chain protocols. Uh, the idea of Cosmos was kicked off in 2016, thinking about you know, this future that we would have today and you know, going off into the next 10 years about a world where you know, every chain will sort of have its own database, but it's data that's not able to be transferred to each other. So you know, we're seeing a large amount of new cross-chain protocols popping up every month, it seems. But Cosmos was really the first, 2016. And we have more you know, finished infrastructure and, and more things ready for people to use right now. But at the same time, it's also not us sort of selling what Cosmos is, but instead it's us providing a standard that other people can use. And that standard we like to call the Interblockchain Communication Protocol, or IBC. We're positioning it in the same way that the TCP IP you know, exists in, in the web today. It's meant to be entirely you know, chain agnostic, permissionless, free protocol for you to use, as long as you know, your, your chain supports relatively fast finality, which generally all proof-of-stake blockchains are you should be able to implement IBC on, on your blockchain framework of choice, allowing them to communicate with each other. So Danelle, I'd love to hear a similar kind of uh, orientation to Stellar and how you're thinking about this and, and maybe how it works for some of our listeners who aren't as familiar with this. But I'd love for you to address that in a kind of use case context. 
you've spoken quite a bit, uh, that Stellar is interested in financial inclusion. And you want to kind of see a world in which moving money around the world is seamless, the way moving data around the world is basically relatively seamless. So maybe you can speak to why interoperability is so important to that, to that particular use case, and also how Stellar is designed in a way to address that particular use case. No, that's great. I think that from the standpoint of interoperability, the first definition that I talked about, which is the on and off ramps, we look at a world right now where the financial system has got so many fractures in it because each country, each region, sometimes even within those countries, there are different financial structures that exist and that it's really hard to get in and out of those. And so the promise of blockchain and actually what's happening with blockchain today is that you can actually leverage blockchain to be able to come on maybe using the existing financial infrastructure, whether that be through a wire transfer or a transfer from your bank account uh, into it, or walking into a store and using fiat and converting that into digital assets that you can then leverage on the blockchain. So you're engaging and you're working with the existing infrastructure. And then you can actually hold those assets in your digital wallet on your phone uh, so that you can then transfer them to, to friends. You can make payments with them. We have a company in Mexico where you can, it's an uh, anchor in Mexico where you can actually, the holder of the asset can pay their utility bills. That's exactly what we want to get to. So we look at these use cases and I like to think of them as very regionally focused, which is another thing that I think the promise of the web back in the early days of the web was that it could actually have this notion of bringing up the regions and everyone could actually have their identity and their content put on the web, um, which I think mostly is true today, although there still are lots of walled gardens around that. But blockchain, and especially permission and openless blockchains like Stellar, you can actually have these local, these regional players that are building to solve the problems in their regions. So they're using this notion of interoperability to be able to enhance the existing infrastructure to leverage those on-ramps and those off-ramps. But then once you get on, there's this really awesome company, for example, in Africa, it's called Leaf Global. It's focusing on refugees and refugees who have a really, sometimes they're outside of their home country for 17 years. And so they can actually take their assets, convert them into digital using the existing, the old financial rails, put them in a digital wallet, and then hold those digital assets as they cross borders so that they don't actually have to have fear that they're going to lose the assets as they go across or that it'll get stolen from them. And then they can get to whatever location they need to get to in a safe way. So it's so awesome to see these regional players solving problems locally that we might not understand and see depending on where we sit. And the interoperability notion is that you can actually build this wherever using whatever financial infrastructure exists in your region, and then but leverage the same sort of tools. I always say this, and it maybe sounds a little corny, but I'll just say like the existing financial infrastructure was built for the few. Blockchain and what blockchain can do and the use cases that we're seeing right now on Stellar, for example, it's built for the many because everyone can access it. You're not restricted in access to be able to take advantage of these wallets, these other tools, yield account, yield bearing accounts, all those kinds of things. So I love what it can do and, I, and interoperability is key to, to making that happen. It's also key, and it, it sounds like you, you've explored this quite a bit, in the development of local solutions. So allowing that kind of grassroots oriented community derived solution that is going to be relevant to a particular community or a particular region, even at a particular point in time, but then allowing that to connect into a much broader ecosystem and not remain isolated. And that is a way to some extent of potentially in any way, at least in theory, codifying informal networks that already exist in many places where they sit outside the formal banking institutions but or the formal banking system, but they actually lack the ability to scale in any meaningful way because they are 
totally offline kinds of systems that operate without any kind of potential consistency in their underlying architecture. No, and that is the thing that I love so much about what can happen with respect to and what is happening already in these regions with blockchain. You know, gone are the days, I hope, where we actually sit in Silicon Valley or wherever, pick your technology location, and we build for everyone. Yes, we can build tools that can help solve problems for folks all over the world, but we actually don't know what those problems are. And so my favorite part of what we do is the fact that we have these regional and local players who actually really understand those problems that can help solve them in different ways. You know, we, we take for granted that we have banks down the street. They don't. And we take for granted that we can actually walk in and get a bank account. Many folks are excluded from the, the banking infrastructure because of the fees that come with it, the, the minimum balance requirements. All of those things don't exist on blockchain. It opens up a whole new world. And as I said, it builds for the many. And that's the, the most awesome part about it. Afraid of missing out on the latest crypto opportunities? Well, then it's time to head on over to pumapay.io. PumaPay's first liquidity pool is now live on PancakeSwap. Deposit liquidity today and claim your share of a 750 million PMA token reward. Hurry now. Visit PumaPay.io today. That's PumaPay.io. So over to you, Pung. I'd like you to just, in a nutshell, <laughs> describe the Cosmos ecosystem and how it works. And also for people to understand what role does Tendermint play in this? I suppose some people might be confused a little and think, hang on a second, am I now having to just trust Tendermint's software? The idea that you've essentially inserted yourselves into this intermediate role. I'm sure you've got a good answer to that, but I'd like you just to be able to lay out how it works and, and explain that particular contradiction. Yeah, so, so Janelle's comment about building for the many really resonates to me. You know, it's what the founders cared a lot about. And me being you know, the first employee, I also care a lot about this. What is possible in a world with interoperability is in a world where people can, you know, onboard onto crypto via Stellar and then you know, communicate from Stellar to another blockchain via something like the IBC protocol and allow them to explore the entire world without a bank account. That's really cool to me, you know, not having to need an address, not even needing like a home address or you know, a credit card or even a cell phone at home, but able to participate in this greater economy. This is really valuable to me. So what Tenderment does is we provide software. We're providing software called the Cosmos SDK. It's actually the, the world's most popular blockchain framework today. There's over 250 projects actively building on it and 30 projects that are highly valued in combination. They're, they're valued at over 60 billion, which is the, the second biggest ecosystem in crypto following Ethereum. Tendermint doesn't serve as the intermediary is how we offer our products, right? Cosmos SDK is entirely free and open source. You don't need to pay us to use it. And in fact, there are, there are companies you know, like Binance that use it to, to build Binance chain. And they're a bigger company than us and they don't pay us anything. So we're not an intermediary here. As long as you, you, know, you feel you can trust the code, you've audited it yourself, you can use it to build your own chain. And we're, we're always finding ways to make that an easier process. We understand that there are, there are teams with less resources, right? Like, like Danielle was saying, not everyone is in Silicon Valley. Not everyone is a well-funded team. And the easier we make the software to use, the more people will end up using it you know, to solve problems in, in their city, in, in their neighborhood. So we're aiming to make the Cosmos SDK as easy to use as possible. You know, right now, it's at sort of the level of, of Ruby on Rails if you're a developer, right? You're able to, to scaffold some code together we want to make it as easy as, you know, as WordPress as it is today. WordPress powers you know, 30% of the world's websites, which is, which is really tremendous when you think about how much value it's been offering to, to many small players. So I guess this leads to you know, impressive growth and use and, and everything there. And, and I think that's we're seeing an explosion in sort of the development happening on many of these interoperability protocols. And so I guess that leads to kind of the next 
question, which is in, in all, with all these interoperability solutions that are emerging, you know, they are to some extent competitive with each other. And are we winding up creating new silo ecosystems where everything is built on one interoperable protocol can work with each, you know, itself and not with the other ones? So are we going to see a world in which the tokens interoperate with each other? You know, is Cosmos, the Atom token going to interoperate with DOT, Polkadot's token, for example? How do you both think about that? Well, I mean, I think that that's my fear. And yet I think that if we all focus on standards, we actually can eliminate that fear. But yes, I get concerned about that because we certainly in the early days of the web all believed that we were going to continue to have this openness and that we wouldn't end up with five companies controlling most of the content. Um, But there has to be like a codified commitment to that. And everybody really has to be committed to openness so that it's not a winner-take-all model. I'm a big believer in the fact that each chain has value that they can actually deliver to whoever their end users are, whether those be developers or consumers, and that that value should be exploited by those users. And to be able to do that, we, we shouldn't have a winner-take-all model. Uh, and I think eventually we got there on the website where we actually allowed this like winner-take-all mentality to sort of to take it. But I feel like here, given that we're actually all working on, we're the technology layer, we're the internet layer. It means that everyone should be able to have those bridges built amongst and between them. I think that one of the things when we talk a lot to regulators about CBDCs, for example, the central bank digital currencies. And one of the things I always try to say is I would love for you all to build on Stellar. That would be awesome. But I also want it to be able to be leveraged on other chains so that you can create that world of interoperability that's really important. And that you can leverage the private folks who have already built these sort of stable coins and these tokens to be able to distribute across these different chains. So I think there has to be a deep commitment to it. And I see it today. We all talk about it. I think that we need to continue to encourage it at all levels. And so I think, yes, there's a challenge and we could be. But I also feel like if we're working with organizations like Pung who are building these cross-chain opportunities and these protocol layers that learn how to talk to one another, I think that we could actually get there. So we just have to be committed to it. You know, Sheila, listening to this and this idea of how we have to work together, we have to come up with standards and agreements. You know, it just reminds me, again, of these conversations we have about governance, about how there are these principles that we have to have that kind of like live outside the blockchain by which participants in the process have a set of rules by which they do to it. And then, of course, I know the WEF's been doing a lot of stuff in this. You've got your Presidio principles. Maybe you can, what are your sure. thoughts? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's something we do think about a lot, you know, as an agency that we don't, we're an institution that does not obviously sponsor code or protocol or anything like that. But we do think about that kind of enabling environment, as I like to call it, in terms of like, what is the context in which all these things are rolling out? And what are the necessary policy levers that are going to ensure that there's incentive, you know, to interoperate, to continue to be open, to continue to be transparent. And so in the spirit of all of that, to your point, Michael, our Global Blockchain Council last year at Consensus, actually, at Consensus, I believe, 2020, we launched the Presidio Principles. Uh, which are a set of principles that we encourage developers, everyone in the ecosystem rather, you know, to sign on to, particularly those who are involved in development and communications. And it really, it kind of points out like, what are the benefits that blockchain technology provides? And let's make sure that, that we are centering those ideas, you know, transparency, accountability, governance, interoperability, agency, individual agency over things like data, which of course is a very web three concept. Uh, all these things are really critically important. And to the extent that we're not doing that, we need to probably be thinking about notice. The next wave of notification is going to be how decentralized and transparent you know, is what you're building on top of 
a blockchain because you can certainly have a very protocol itself can remain intact and you can build something highly centralized on top of it that has like one tentacle, you know, touching a blockchain. Should you be able to say that that really is remaining true to kind of the integrity of a blockchain if that's not what's really happening? That was kind of all presaged in this document that is still very live and active. And in fact, we're doing a whole refresh on it, releasing it in a few more languages. So thank you for asking. That's going to be coming up later in the fall. You know, you know, Peng, one of the things that you know, really jumped out last year was the news that you know, the Cosmos network would be integrated with China's BSN, the Blockchain Services Network. You know, that's obviously understood to be a permissioned system that you know, the Chinese government has significant oversight over elements of it. There's this attempt, it seems to me, to try to bring in a certain amount of interoperability with more permissionless environments. Again, complicated balancing act. Can you tell me a little bit about what Cos- how Cosmos will work into that and how do you protect the openness of the system? Yeah, so the way it's protected is you know, without protection, paradoxically enough. There are no ways that you can prevent Cosmos to be used in closed source systems or closed enterprises. Just the same way, there's no way to prevent Cosmos from being used for all sorts of open projects. Cosmos is meant to be permissionless and also opinionless. And depending on who wants to use Cosmos for what, they can do so. But through the IBC protocol, which mentioned by Sheila earlier, you know, is it only something for, for Cosmos, right? Do you have to build on Cosmos to use IBC? No, you don't have to. And in fact, IBC is being worked on for Polkadot and for Celo right now, for, for other chains in the future as well, of course. It's not political technology, right? You can do with it what you want. The way you can connect to other chains is all permissionless and done by the user itself, right? So if someone in China wanted to transfer tokens you know, outside of BSC to, to a chain in, in France or in India, they're, they're able to do so as long as you know, the Great Firewall of China doesn't block that from happening. So, so just to clarify, yeah, there is the opportunity to do something that would you know, seamlessly allow me to take my RMB, my digital RMB denominated asset, and use the interoperability protocol connection through Cosmos to transfer it to another chain somewhere else. But at the end of the day, there could still be a blockage. Like it's still, basically, the capital controls on the Chinese side will still be there. It creates the rails, but the... The structure on the controller's side is still still open, yeah. Okay. We haven't developed something like Tor yet for blockchain interoperability protocols. That would be really cool to see, but we're definitely a ways off from that. That would be so cool. <laughs> so, Danelle, I, I, I was thinking as well, since we just mentioned you know, this role of a government here, there's this regulatory risk in all this generally <laughs> as well. Regulators like to have uh, the identity of some entity that they can step into, and, and we certainly know that the way that, for example, FinCEN and the various AML laws that have been built around crypto have used those on and off ramps as the places to actually have the controlling factor. In theory, a world of decentralized interoperability gives nowhere for the regulators to go after. And you know, we may well argue that's a good thing, but it certainly must be something that bothers regulators. How do you talk about that with, with governments? Yeah, I think that there's a lot of fear with governments with respect to any kind of new technology. We've gotten governments all over the world very comfortable with the internet and with the fact that there are these computers all over the world that run this thing that allow us to be able to have these kinds of discussions online. So I think if you think about it as a technology layer and the tech stack itself, I think we've been able to engage in a way to say there's no reason to regulate this platform layer, the technology layer, so the protocol layer, because it's very, very similar. And it is essentially uh, the same thing as the internet and how the internet works. And these decentralized computers allow all of this speed and scale and this opportunity to be global. And so that's one of the great things I think about the protocol layer. I actually think that most governments, and and I don't know, Sheila, you spend a lot of time doing this too. 
and I, and I say this all the time because it's so true. Governments know how to regulate fiat. They know how to regulate money. And so any entity that touches fiat, which is essentially your on-ramp onto any, any blockchain, is already regulated. And so there may be small gaps and small holes with respect to that kind of regulation and maybe new entities pop up that are going to be these on-ramps to the blockchains and then that'll create like a need to be able to pay some attention there. But I do feel like governments are going to get more and more comfortable with this notion of there are already regulations that apply. They already know how to do this because they've been doing it for hundreds of years. And so I think that that part isn't uh, so scary to them. But what you pointed out was this notion of like, where, how do we follow the money? And that one always makes me chuckle inside. I don't chuckle on the outside about this because I understand that that's a concern. But on the inside, it's just like, well, gosh, it's actually now there's an account. There's a ledger. You can actually see where it goes where you couldn't do that for anything else. Like fiat was completely untraceable unless you put those little tabs in it that blew up. But then, you know, where are you going to, you can't really trace those across borders. And so it's an interesting dynamic to see. I, I think that, you know, we just saw with the ransomware situation where it's actually to the, yes, they're going to use the, the entities on the edges to be able to find out who these, these people are. And is that a bad thing? Maybe if you're completely looking at a trustless world and you want to be able to not have to trust any entity at all, but certainly when you're touching fiat, that's not the world that you live in. And we know that that's where things are going to go. So I do feel like the way that we like to talk about it, and, and I know I'm working on councils with the web, with the WEF, they like to talk about this as well. You have to talk to regulators and policymakers about what they're missing out on for their constituents if they don't allow this new technology and these new frameworks to come in. Stop focusing on the technology stack and focus on those use cases and what's happening that's so valuable to the end users and the developers that's, that they want to be a part of it. And then I feel like we can actually get there. So we've had a lot of, um, there's certainly still some headwinds, but I feel like we've been able to like really move and progress in that in the right direction with respect to it, particularly outside the US. And even in the US, I feel like we have a, a lot of a nice attention focused there. So I get very hopeful about where we see things. And one of the things that hasn't been mentioned yet, and I think that the, the reason why interoperability is so important, and this notion of not one player winning everything, is that competition and innovation are the reason why we actually are here with blockchain and we have blockchain that exists. And what happens is that competition and innovation stifles when you have a winner-take-all model and, or when you have too much government interaction and regulation. And so both of these things actually make it so that we can actually see all this regional value, all of these things happening in these local players. So I'm hopeful that when we even focus there, we'll be able to see that even the ones that want to win, we all want to win, by the way, I'm not saying that we don't, but we, we can win by actually making sure that we're doing the best that we can to compete and to provide an awesome tech stack for other players to build on. But it's okay if that player chooses to build on us and also to build on another chain because each chain has their own value. So focusing on the innovation thing is really important too. I love where you ended that, Danelle. You know, I think Michael and I are really privileged to sit in a place in the ecosystem where we get to back the ecosystem, right? We get to back the whole thing as a concept, as a theory, and as practice because we don't represent any particular protocol or orientation or approach. You know, we are, we are neutral in our orientation of the whole thing, deliberately so. And But what I find really interesting to your point about regulators is, you know, there's this kind of... Um, in every context, I think there's a little bit of a have your cake and eat it too, right? Like you want this to be uh, criminal money, but at the same time, you know, you want to say that it's like, even though it's proven that you can actually track criminals and catch them using this, and this these cases go way back beyond even the ransomware context. I mean, back to Silk Road, you know, at the end of the day, 
<laughs> Ross is in jail, right? Like that, that happened. And that despite the whole kind of concept that this was super untraceable and you never find people, well, you know what? They were found. Or the whole environmental component to this, which, you know, is a whole rabbit hole we don't have to go down today because we've certainly covered that uh, before on the show and I know will again. Uh, but I think there's this really interesting, to me, it localizes around inclusion and whether inclusion is just a talking point, which it is for some in the space, and I won't name names, but there are definitely people that throw around financial inclusion without any real evidence that their particular product or service is being used in that capacity. But if you're really serious about expanding opportunities, there isn't a lot of choice. Either you have to blow up parts of the existing financial system that were constructed, whether inadvertently or otherwise, and we've discussed this on the show as well. So it's really a combination of the two, sometimes deliberately, sometimes accidentally. Nevertheless, hugely exclusionary of large swaths of the population. There is not a good way of adjusting that system without pretty dramatic change. So the question becomes, do you then build something that can accommodate and is oriented towards those individuals who are unbanked or underbanked or in banking deserts or whatever, insert category, right? Whatever it might be, that gives them a chance to then create what ultimately could be an on-road into the financial system. And if you look at it from that perspective, the regulatory moment of entry into that system becomes an interesting thing to think about. Uh, But also I think there's this theory versus practice concept. So there's this kind of like talking point in the crypto that like, well, we're going to destroy all of the legacy fiat system and it's going to wind up being this, you know, all blockchain all the time. And that's just not realistic, right? I think there's, there is fiat exists, it's going to exist. And so the the reality remains that there's going to be on and off ramps from those systems, call them legacy, call them whatever you want, into blockchain systems and into the crypto environment. And you're always going to have the ability, to your point, Danelle, to apply regulation that we know is kind of tried and tested. Again, it works for some more than others, and it's logical in some contexts and not others. Regardless, it exists at those moments of on and off ramping. And so I think that when we look at what's actually happening and what the direction of travel is, it is not the total eradication of the existing financial system and and doing away with all of fiat. It's actually saying there are going to be opportunities and people are going to basically vote with their money. They're going to move it into the system that provides whatever they need at that moment. And if there are geographies where fiat just does not suffice, they're going to use something, they're going to use crypto, they're going to use something else, they're going to use a token, they're going to use a a system that's going to actually meet the needs they have as they move in and out of different environments. Pung, I mean, maybe a little bit more about China. What is the nature of the, is it a deal when the, uh, you know, I think there's this, you know, a number of different entities that are sort of building that BSN, you know, what, what is the, the structure of that relationship look like? I mean, is Tendermint actually involved in, in developing services for, uh, for the Chinese users, or is it just like anybody using the SDK and plugging in as they see fit? Right. So first of all, with China, Tendermint's not directly involved. Uh, we have a partner called Bianje, and they are a Chinese company, right? And we partnered with them in 2017, I believe. They, they launched their, their Cosmos blockchain, right? Built on the Cosmos SDK actually one week before the Cosmos Hub. So they were, in fact, the very first Cosmos chain. And they are the team working with you know, China and BSN. So I don't actually know a lot of what's going on on that front. Like Michael was saying earlier, you know, they would be considered just another team that is building something with Cosmos technology. How do you think about building globally when big, massive players right, have these sets of rules and things that are coming out that make that challenging? Uh, you know, how to navigate these waters, right? Where sort of every country, every jurisdiction has its own legislation around crypto. You know, some may be further ahead, some may be further behind. 
that's what Cosmos is designed for. That's what you know, an interoperability protocol is designed for. Every geographical locale, every country can have their own set of blockchains that follow the rules dictated by their governments. And if they're not allowed to connect to blockchains outside of the country, well, then it's unfortunate for the citizens living there. That's just how it is. That's how the web works today. That's how firewalls work. And uh, if you are open to being a part of the wider internet, like most of the world is today, then very similarly in Web3, the tokens that you hold will be able to be transferred across the entire world to whichever jurisdiction supports you know, accessing your tokens. It's, it's a really elegant way of making sure that and encouraging governments and legislation to, to be more open to this sort of financial model. You know, so I think this ties back to a point you made earlier, Zanel, which is you can build the you can build with, not for, which is a phrase I say at my team like constantly, like, are you building with a community or for a community in the Silicon Valley model? You can build these very locally relevant solutions that are not just uh, user-centric to that particular locality or community, but also accommodate whatever regulations and rules and you know, whatever might transpire there. And then because of the nature of the protocol, those can globally connect to a variety of other projects and other initiatives that are happening in other parts of the world that might have a very different user base orientation, need different design on the UX kind of side of it, but also have a different set of regulations or rules or requirements uh, around whatever it might be, connectivity or KYC AML, whatever it might be, whatever those rules might be, you can accommodate a lot of that via these interoperability, these these cross-chain concepts. Yeah, no, it's really important to have that. I think that what we have is built into the Stellar Protocol is the, this compliance functionality. And so any asset issuer can actually have their compliance, for example, and when they want to do KYC and AML, do they want to do it at redemption? Do they want to do it when someone actually on-ramps and purchases their tokens? Uh, how do they want to think about that? And then how do they want to pass that information? All those things are built into the protocol layer, and it makes it so that each one can choose the mechanisms that they want to leverage. There's also the opportunity to be able to say, you know what, I don't want this asset to be held by anyone unless I've actually approved that they can hold this asset so that you can have an authorization required so that the token can't pass. I I think that that's useful for some entities. I like the openness of tokens that allow transfer and then KYC and AML either at the off-ramp or the on-ramp stage. But, you know, like I think that this is the whole point is that entities have to build based on their own regional requirements and also based on their own needs. And I think that that is what's so awesome about having open permissionless systems. And so I know we've been talking about interoperability, but in order to really get to the heart of what we're trying to do here, open permissionless systems allow so much opportunity for growth and creativity and all those things that I got to tell you, like, I love my job, but I am not someone who could actually come up with the solutions that people come up with because the problems that they're trying to solve are very different. And so the permissionless network allows them to be able to come on and to to give it a go and to figure out how they can make it work. And I think that that's really, really important. I love the principles that the left put out because I want us to constantly focus on, let's not repeat the mistakes that we made on the content side of the web. Let's not like make ourselves like put ourselves into boxes where we have developers having to develop for four different types of code base out there because they want to be able to have their app in all these different stores. Those are things that just should be history now, and we should be focused on how to build with languages and the protocols that allow this kind of interoperability across them all. Yeah, and I think that the empowerment this really provides to individuals and communities to really build and design solutions that meet their needs is something that we're going to be talking about quite a bit in our Crypto Impact and Sustainability Accelerator, which of course, Danelle uh, Stellar is going to be a, a critical part of. And, and the idea of surfacing these use cases not just around, you know, what are applications that are happening that are kind of helping with some of these problems, 
but also the method, the process that can be used to do that and how you can create and embed even into the governance layer that community ownership of these different solutions. And so you give people uh, the agency to design and make their own lives better. And to me, that's one of the most powerful things about some of the solutions that we're talking about today. And I don't want to pretend that it's simple either. I think it's actually one of the things about building a network and then building an ecosystem and then making sure that you're open and that you're actually adhering to your open source ideals. It's hard because you have to make sure you get participants to engage. You know, we have our open protocol meetings And we have lots of people who watch it and lots of people who comment on it and give us feedback on it. But we just started doing the meetings in the open about two years ago. That was one of the big things that I really said, if we're open source and we're committed to it, by the way, I am. And I love the openness, not just in in this kind of thing, but also in everything that we do. So not just in our code, but in, in how we operate with respect to the assets that we hold as well. We need to really focus on it, but it isn't easy. And so I understand why sometimes people want a shortcut. Because the shortcuts sometimes, you know, they make it it's simpler if you can actually be centralized for a little bit and then try to move to open. But it's really hard to move to open once you've been centralized. And so this is the notion, like creating those network effects, creating the impact that you want on the developers that are building on your network, trying to make it simple. We learn every time someone builds something on the network, we learn every time how we could do it better, how we could help them to integrate simpler and easier and faster. And so these are the things that we all need to be very agile in terms of coming up with. And so I get it that it's hard to be open, permissionless, and to want others to build, but we're a platform, we're a technology, and that's what we're supposed to do. So I think if we all sort of focus on what we are and what we bring, we'll see more value in, in the future in terms of how things are delivered. So, so that's the hard stuff. What I'd like to end with here, because we've got time really for just one question for each of you. Um, is the fun stuff, right? To think about the vision of the world that might come if we achieve all this open, interoperable systems. Um, and you know, one of the things that I think has, has helped to energize the thinking around this is the sudden enthusiasm, because they're not, not that newer technology, but NFTs, right? NFTs now are across multiple chains. You can, be, you, know, you can issue on Flow. You can, you know, obviously, there's a lot of us on Ethereum. There's, there's new other, other chains emerging. There are multiple different platforms, and you can't necessarily move one to the other, and you, you can't take your rights, and your rights are attached to one platform. It really is a bit of a mess at this stage. And so, yes, they probably have to go through something tonight, along with what you're talking about, Danielle, where the industry needs to come together and figure out what those open standards are. But let's assume they do. What I want to sort of ask both of you is to say, okay, what does all this interoperability mean for something like this idea of the metaverse, right? The idea that we kind of live these lives online where uh, I've got this digital asset and it could be of any form. It can be, you know, a, a piece of media or it can be, you know, a, a weapon from a game or it could be a song or it could be, you know, a, a money. And I can take it anywhere and I start to sort of like interact with that world. It seems to me that, that when we talk about this metaverse concept, which is really getting a lot of attention right now, it depends upon interoperability. So I'm sure you guys have given some thought to it. Yeah, yeah. So first of all, I think you raised a very good question, right? There are NFTs being issued on many different platforms that are not interoperable with each other, you know, and there are people pretending to be other people and selling their NFTs on a different platform. These are big problems that we need to solve. And that's generally solved through, you know, adoption of standards. We think that, you know, of course, IBC should be that standard because we've been building it for so long and because um, we're funding people to also adopt IBC. But at the same time, you know, it doesn't need to be the, the only protocol that succeeds here. I think in terms of the metaverse, though, the metaverse has many layers. And what that means is that depending on which ecosystem you're in, depending on, you know, maybe what jurisdiction you're living in, you know, maybe there are a certain level of, of NFTs that are censored where you're living. Or maybe, you know, the NFTs 
you, you hold are not allowed here. So you can imagine, you know, wearing different sets of glasses that show you different parts of the metaverse, potentially. I think it's, I think it's really exciting and I think it's the future. But the idea of, of multi-chain NFTs is really what allows for multiple metaverses to exist at the same time. It's going to be very confusing, but, you know, at the same time, you can imagine at school, right? You wouldn't want everyone to be exposed to the same set of NFTs as at a club. These are just going to happen in the future. Danelle, your thoughts? So mind is blown by talking about different glasses for different parts of the metaverse. This is the creative part that I love about what other folks bring to it. You know, I think about it a lot in terms of gaming. And I think what you just articulated was one of those, like if you have a, a tool or a, a something that you can use a weapon in one game, you should be able, or, or you have a suit that you use in one game and you should be able to take it to another game. I think gaming is the first place to see this happen that if we can actually take this across different gaming platforms and be able to leverage those things that you acquire maybe from some independent, and then you can leverage it in all the different games, that's all based on standards. And that would be super cool to see. We're going to have to solve these problems. I mean, I think one of the things that Pung just mentioned is the fact that maybe in some jurisdictions, some of these NFTs won't be legal. We dealt with that on the content side of the web. It's not easy, but it's totally, you know, you just have to deal with it. You have to, you know, you couldn't show certain content in Germany, and you couldn't show certain content in France, and you needed to be aware of that as a platform. And so these are not going to go away. Those are things we're going to have to work through, but I think we can. I love all of this notion of creativity. So I feel like uh, we have a lot that's ahead of us still, and what, what can be leveraged and what can be developed on blockchain. You know, our network is very focused on payments and asset issuance. We tend to be a little, and, and some, some DeFi stuff, but we tend to be on the boring side of things. We're the bread and butter, I would say, in terms of getting stuff done. But I think that it's so cool to see this technology used for all of these different things. And we'd love to see people building all these different pieces, even sometimes on Stellar that I think, you know, we don't expect that it's going to be part of it, but it is. And people build on it and they make it part of us. And so we're like, hey, there you go. This is the beauty of blockchain. I wanted to add, especially on the part of NFTs and, you know, KYC and AML, there is the idea of decentralized identifiers, which can be implemented as NFTs to allow, let's say if you're on Stellar and you needed to prove your identity to you know, an onboarding partner that might be stored on an NFT that can be transferred or, or carried with you, you know, around the world, allowing you entry to, you know, bars on planes, et cetera, if you have a plane ticket to show that you have a driver's license, et cetera. And this is one way that uh, regulation is going to merge with crypto. That's something we could take down a different channel. NFT is actually <laughs> becoming this, this unique portable I- identifier and, and a, a carrier of information rather than just a piece of media. I think it's a really important point. And it does, it just shows you how once you uh, build this underlying foundation, you sort of flip your, your brain a bit on what these things could do and how they're done. I don't think we really have any idea what will be possible if we get there, but you heard folks from Danelle Dixon and Bang Zong here laying out for us that this is difficult. Interoperability is almost by definition really hard and it involves not just a lot of development, but also a lot of you know commitment to standards and governance principles and, and people sort of all, all pulling together for a common goal. Uh, so we heard that and it was fabulous to get you guys to lay out the next steps that need to happen in that regard. But it was fun also to explore where it could be. You know, the thing is like, let's do it because, you know, there's there's so much that could come from this. So thank you very much for your time, Danelle and Pang. Thank you again, as always, Sheila Warren. And thank you all of you for joining us once again on Money Reimagined. Come back next week for another edition. Bye for now. You've been listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined. This episode featured Sheila Warren, Michael J. Casey, Danielle Dixon, and Peng Zong. 
Our theme song is Shepherd, and this episode was produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau, with production assistance and announcements by Adam B. Levine. Have any questions or comments? Send us an email at podcasts at coindesk.com or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening. <laughs>